Those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. But before you can truly learn from the tales of our past, you must first understand them. And you're in luck because you found the one and only show that dives deep into the historical figures of our past and how key events have shaped the world that we live in today. You're tuned to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Right here on WRFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. With your host of today's show, Connor Bolanos. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where today we're going to be talking about Charles XII of Sweden, also known as Carolus Rex, one of the greatest military minds of the 18th century, and also one of the greatest and last absolutist king of the Swedish Empire. Now, we have a lot to cover today from Charles's early life to the vast military campaigns that he embarked on, so let's jump right into it. So Charles XII was the son of the previous king of Sweden, Charles XI, and Orica Leonora, and he was born on the 17th of June, 1682, as the fifth son of the king. However, his four older brothers all died in infancy, as seems to happen in many European royal families, and as such, Charles was from childhood groomed in order to be educated and knowing the inner workings of the administration of the Kingdom of Sweden for his time when he finally would come to inherit the throne. He was well-educated in theology, military science, classics, languages, mathematics, and history, and this was all mainly due to his father, who had, in his own youth, had been neglected in his education, and as such, saw it valued and essential to grant Charles XII the best education possible. From his father as well, Charles constantly was writing to the point where he was able to ride before the age of four, and he would also constantly engage in mock battles with his peers and teachers, where it was noted that he was hardened to fatigue and exposure, later leading to the claim that he had an ungodly or an unhuman tolerance to pain and fatigue. The young prince was like his parents in many ways. He had the untiring and stubborn and stubborn will of his father, something that was displayed during his various military campaigns. And he also preferred action over words, rather than the niceties of diplomacy and the courtly innuendos. And from his mother, he inherited what seemed to be his unflinching devotion to duty, that duty being to his people and to the kingdom of Sweden and the Swedish Empire. Now, his father, Charles XI, hoped that Charles would be able to have a peaceful transition into the role as king of Sweden. However, on the 5th of April, 1697, Charles XI would die, leaving Charles XII in the care of a six-region council, upon which, however, was eventually disbanded due to the estates of Sweden, caused, believing that there was an inner conflict within the council, and requested that the underage Charles, at 15 at the time, assumed full responsibility for the kingdom. By the end of the year, on the 5th of April, 1697, Charles was crowned king. And at this ceremony, something that really showed the nature of Charles XII and his reign was that he foregoed the traditional oath and ended up crowning himself the king, showing that he took orders from no one but God himself, and really setting the tone for an absolutist reign as the king of Sweden. Charles will not have long after his coronation before he got into his first conflict in 1700, where the monarchs of Denmark, Norway, and Saxony, which was at that time ruled by August II of Poland, who was then king of Poland-Lithuania, hence why they would come to join the conflict, and United and Russia united in an alliance against Sweden, largely due to the efforts of Johann Reinhold Pachtol, a Livonian nobleman who turned traitor when the great reduction of Charles and Charles XI in 1680 stripped much of the nobility 
of lands and properties. Livonia at the time was a Swedish dominion, and this great reduction was really Charles XI's way of centralizing the power within himself, uh, within the Swedish Empire, which caused great distrust and unrest within the nobility, something that definitely would resurge and rise back up after the death of Charles XII. In late 1699, Charles sent a minor detachment to help his brother, the Duke Frederick IV of Holstein-Gottorp, who was attacked by Danish forces in 1700. Meanwhile, while this was happening, the Saxon army invaded Swedish Livonia and in February surrounded the Swedish city of Riga, at the time the second largest city in the Swedish Empire. Actually, the most populous city in the Swedish Empire behind ahead of Stockholm. Russia would then join the war on this in August of 1700, but stopped short of an attack on Swedish Ingria until September of 1700. With this, Charles had to make moves against his enemies, and his first campaign ended up focusing on Denmark-Norway, which was ruled by his cousin, Frederick IV of Denmark. In this campaign, Charles secured the support of England and the Netherlands, both maritime powers who were concerned with Denmark's threats to close the Sound the sound being the, the strait between Sweden and the city of Copenhagen. It was a large area where trade ships would pass through, and they were threatening to close this, which would have severely hampered trade in the Baltic as a whole. Leading a force of 8,000 men and 43 ships in invasion of Zealand, one of the islands in Denmark, Charles rapidly compelled the Danish to submit to the Treaty of Travendal in August of 1700, which indemnified Holstein. Having forced Denmark to make peace within mere months, Charles turned his attention upon the two mo remaining powerful neighbors— August II, and Peter the Great of Russia, who had entered the war against him. Ironically as well, on the same day that Denmark would come to terms with Sweden. Russia had opened their part of the war by invading the Swedish-held territories of Livonia and Estonia, with which Charles countered by attacking the Russian besiegers at the Battle of Narva in November of 1700, where he inflicted a crushing blow. And although the Russians outnumbered the Swedish army of 10,000 men by almost 4 to 1 in this battle, Charles would attack under the cover of a blizzard and split the Russian army in two and win the battle. Many of Peter's troops in this battle who fled the battlefield ended up drowning in the Narva River, and the total number of Russian fatalities as a result of this battle reached about 10,000, while Swedish forces only lost roughly 667 men. However, Charles did not pursue his victory and follow up and follow the Russian army. Instead, he moved south towards uh, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was at this point formally neutral and thereby disregarding Polish negotiation proposals supported by the Swedish parliament. Charles would defeat Polish, the Polish King Augustus II and his Saxon allies at the Battle of Kriglo in 1702 and captured many cities of the Commonwealth. After this, and through this, he would actually overthrow August II as the King of Sweden, as the king of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and put a puppet on the throne through Stanislaw I in 1704. But this was only the start of Charles's military campaigns and what would come to become the Great Northern War. For anyone just tuning in, you're listening to History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos, the show where we dive deep into the historical figures of our past to better understand our present. For all of you just tuning in, welcome back to another week of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery. Today we're talking about Charles Twelfth, and we just got done talking about his early life and the first opening phases of what would come to be the Great Northern War. So now, after these battles and after Charles had achieved a decisive victory in the Commonwealth and secured the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth as an ally with the coronation of Stanislaw I and the surrender of the state of Saxony, the Russian Tsar, Peter the Great, would embark on a military reform plan to improve the Russian army, given that it was so utterly humiliated at the Battle of Navra. 
Using the effectively organized Swedish army and other European standards for role models, Russian forces managed to penetrate Ingria and establish a new city, St. Petersburg. Charles planned an invasion of the Russian heartland in response, allying himself with Ivan Mazepa, hetman of the Ukrainian Cossacks. The size of the invading Swedish army was peeled off as Charles left Lezinski with some 24,000 Germans and Polish troops, departing eastwards from Saxony in late 1707 as well, with some 35,000 men, adding another 12,500 under Adam Ludwig Levenhaupt, where he would march from Livonia. Charles left the homeland with a defense of approximately 28,000 men, with a further 14,000 in Swedish Finland, as well as further garrisons in the Baltic and German provinces, in case the Russians made any counterattacks. From here, he would go on to secure victory in the Battle of Holizin, despite being outnumbered 3-1 to one against the new Russian army, showing that the Russian army was still inferior to the, the Swedish army, despite the various reforms under Peter the Great. Charles opted from here to march eastwards on Moscow, rather than try to seize St. Petersburg, which was founded on... Um, the Swedish town of Nijnskaz, five years earlier when the Russians took it. Despite this victory, Peter the Great managed to ambush Levenhop's army at Lesnaya before Charles could end up combining all of his forces, losing vast amounts of men and valuable supplies, artillery, and half of Levenhop's men in the process. Charles's Polish ally, Stanislaw I, was facing internal problems within his kingdom, and Charles expected the support of a massive Cossack rebellion led by Mazeppa in Ukraine with estimates suggesting him being able to muster 40,000 troops. But the Russians were able to subjugate this rebellion and destroy its capital before the arrival of Swedish troops. The harsh climate also took its toll upon Swedish forces, as Charles marched his troops for winter camp in Ukraine. This resulted in Charles not having anywhere near the amount of men he needed for his planned campaign, and really left him isolated, something that would really show to be a detriment to him in his campaign at the decisive Battle of Poltova. Charles during this battle was wounded, a third of his infantry was dead, and his supply train was destroyed. With the king incapacitated by a coma resulting from his injuries and unable to lead the Swedish forces, the number of Charles's army at this time had reduced to some 23,000, with several wounded and handling the siege of Poltava. His general at the time who took over command from him, Karl Gustav Rengshald, had a clearly inferior force to face the fortified and modernized army of Tsar Peter, given the various... Um, Issues that have resulted and prevented the Swedish army from being as strong as it should have been. The Swedish assault, however, would end in disaster, with the king fleeing with a small entourage to the Ottoman Empire, where he set up Cap and Bender with some 1,000 Karolians. The remainder of his army would later surrender at Perlevokta under Levenhop's command, most of them spending the rest of their days in Russian captivity. This defeat at Poltova in 1709 marks the downfall, really, of the Swedish Empire, and was really also seen as the founding point of the Russian Empire. But Charles XII was not out of the war just yet, despite the, the setbacks that Sweden had encountered. In the Ottoman Empire, the Turks initially welcomed the Swedish king, who also managed to provoke a war between the Ottomans and the Russians at the time, in order to open a new front to give Sweden some more breathing room. His expenses at the time were covered by the Ottoman state budget as part of its fixed assets. However, eventually, a small village would come to be built, actually, near Bender to accommodate the ever-growing Swedish population. And Sultan Ahmed III, as a gesture to King Charles XII, had brought some of the Swedish women and children put up for sale by the Russians and turned them over to the Swedes, thus strengthening the growing community. 
However, Sultan Ahmed III's subjects in the empire got tired of Charles. They got tired of him involving himself in the court, and his entourage had accumulated huge amounts of debt with Bender merchants. Eventually, crowds of townspeople would end up attacking the Swedish colony, and Charles had to defend himself against the mobs, upon which the Ottoman Janissaries had to become involved. While the Ottomans ended up protecting Charles from the mob, they ended up placing him at house arrest at Dimitoka and Constantinople. During his imprisonment, the king would simply continue on, playing chess, and he actually studied the Ottoman navy and naval architecture of Ottoman galleys, upon which his sketches and designs would actually eventually lead to the famous Swedish warships, Yaramas and Yildirim. Meanwhile, while he was in exile, Russian Poland regained and expanded their borders, attacking the various garrisons that Charles had left behind in his dominions. Great Britain as well, an adversary of Sweden at the time, defected from its alliance obligations while Prussia attacked Swedish holdings in Germany. Russia would end up occupying Finland, and after the deaths of the Swedish army, consisting mainly of Finnish troops in the Battle of Palkane in 1713 and the Battle of Sorkrio in 1714, the military administration the military administration and clergymen all had to escape from Finland, which fell under Russian military regime. So while Charles was in the Ottoman Empire, his empire was really collapsing around him, as all that was left to defend uh, his kingdom was the various garrisons he left behind, and without his strong leadership, there wasn't really any idea for the administration on what to do and how to respond to this. Augustus II would overthrow Stanislaus I and regain the Polish throne. And during his five-year stay in the Ottoman Empire, which is how long Charles was there, he ended up corresponding with his sister and eventual successor, Ulrika Eleonora. And it was in these that Charles expressed a desire for a peace treaty, actually, which would be defensible in the future of the Swedish generation's eyes. However, he emphasized that only a greater respect for Sweden in Europe would enable him to achieve such a peace treaty. Meanwhile, this beleaguered Swedish Council of State tried to keep Sweden organized and independent despite the various enemies of the kingdom closing in and annexing more and more land. But Charles would refuse to make peace, banking on the idea that a new military victory and a new round of military conquest against his enemies would allow him to secure a more favorable treaty. And this was really essential to the Swedish Empire. The Swedish Empire was founded upon the idea that it was military, militarily superior to its surrounding states, as it was in the Thirty Years' War and that eight years of fighting that Gustavus Adolphus, as we talked about in the previous episode, really demonstrated Swedish superiority in military tactics. As Sweden was a country with only a population of roughly 2 million people and an agricultural-based society that wasn't very rich. It was upon the military and the perceived strength of the Swedish military that the entire perception of Sweden as a great power rested. Thus, Charles had to fight wars against these enemies and not give up if he wished to maintain Sweden's place as an empire and as a great power in Europe. Eventually, Charles would agree to leave Constantinople and return to Swedish Pomerania, made the journey on horseback in 15 days riding across Europe, where he traveled across the Habsburg Kingdom of Hungary to Vienna, where he would eventually arrive at Strausland. After five years, Charles would eventually arrive in Sweden to find his homeland in turmoil as wars with Russia, Saxony, Hanover, Great Britain, and Denmark ravaged the countryside and occupied vast swaths of former Swedish territory. Sweden's western enemies attacked southern and western Sweden while Russian forces at the time were traveling across Finland to attack Stockholm. For the first time, Sweden found itself in a defensive war, but Charles's plan was to turn that defensive war into an offensive war by attacking Denmark 
and striking at her possessions in Norway. It was hoped that by cutting off Denmark's Norwegian supply lines, the Danish would be compelled to withdraw their forces from Swedish Scania and thus give the Swedes a bit more breathing room. As such, Charles invaded Norway in 1716 with a combined force of 7,000 men, where he occupied the capital of Christinia, which is modern-day Oslo, and laid siege to the Akershus fortress there. Due to a lack of heavy siege cannons, however, he was unable to dislodge the Norwegian forces, and after suffering significant loss of men and material, Charles was forced to retreat on the 29th of April. In mid-May, Charles would once again attempt to invade Norway, striking at the fortress of Friedrichsten. However, the Swedes once again under cannon fire were forced to retreat from the fortress. And at the same time as well, a Swedish supply fleet nearby was attacked and defeated by Torgenskjold in the Battle of Dainkilden. So far from this campaign, it seemed that the Swedish were going to be unable to gain the initiative that was needed to prove another victory. In 1718, Charles once again invaded Norway, this time with a force of 40,000 men, much larger than its previous force of 7,000, and he laid siege to the fortress of Friedrichsten. However, it was in this battle that great tragedy happened. While in the trenches close to the perimeter of the fortress on the 11th of December, 1718, Charles was struck in the head by a projectile and killed. The shot struck the left side of his skull and exited completely from the right, and the shock of the impact caused the king to grasp his sword with his right hand, cover the wound with his left hand, leaving his hands covered in blood. And this, and this was a fatal shot. There was no recovering from this for Charles, and dead and deprived, the Swedish forces would be unorganized and would eventually rout and upon which Sweden would be forced to come to terms with all of its enemies. Now, the circumstances around the death of Charles XII are actually kind of questioned. Now, most people and more modern evidence suggests that the king was ultimately struck by a stray grape shot round from the nearby Norwegian fortress. However, some believe that Charles XII was actually assassinated. Now, in the death of Charles XII, there were actually no witnesses to the action itself, and no one was able to, as a result, tell exactly what happened, which led to the rise of, I guess, conspiracy theories in regards to who killed Charles XII. Now, while most did believe that it was through the traditional grape shot, others believed that he was assassinated by people within the country. Um, some believe that it was a disgruntled Norwegian a disgruntled Swedish soldier who simply wanted to go home and end the war and was frustrated with Charles XII for not doing so and as such he took his musket, pointed it at Charles and shot. Now others believe that it was Frederick I, the brother-in-law of uh, Charles XII who actually assassinated him as it was Frederick I who became the king following Charles XII. So many believe that he used the opportunity to kill him and steal the throne for himself. Uh, others believe though that it was an assassination plot by the nobility and the wealthy within the Kingdom of Sweden as Charles had planned to implement a 17% wealth tax upon uh, these wealthy individuals and many believe that he was assassinated in order to prevent that from happening. However, his body was exhumed three times in 1746, 1859, and in 1917. And in 1859 and 1917, evidence was concluded that he was ultimately shot at 150 meters a second from a stray grape shot from the fortress. Thus, putting an end to the reign of the young king, who died at the age of 36, and would do so on the 30th of November, 1718, ending the... Swedish chances of victory within the Great Northern War, ending Sweden's time as a great power, ending the Swedish Empire, and ending absolutism within the Kingdom of Sweden as we know it. 
Now, the legacy of Charles XII is a bit of a controversial one, given that, on one hand, people f saw him as a hero, a hero of Sweden. He was a great general, a great leader, and many saw him as a great king, and he was really romanticized during the Romantic period for these various qualities, and Napoleon himself even likened himself to Charles XII, and Adolf Hitler even was a fan of Charles XII uh, during his life. But critics of Charles XII said that despite all this, he placed his pride and arrogance above all else by refusing the peace out with his enemies and insisting upon a military victory. However, I would argue that it was actually essential for Charles to keep fighting the war for the betterment of the state of Sweden. Sweden's position in Europe, its, its status as a great power, was dependent upon its perceived military strength, as that's what it was established as a great power under during the Thirty Years' War, where Gustavus Adolphus displayed the quality of the Swedish army, its professionalism, and its leadership, and in doing so, cemented itself as a military great power. Sweden's population and economy were weak relative to its neighbors, and it was only in the military that it really reigned supreme. Thus, if Charles XII wanted to maintain the Swedish Empire and maintain the prosperity and dominance that Sweden had. He had to keep fighting to obtain a military victory to show that despite everything, Sweden would and was the premier military power within Europe. And with his death, that was disproven, which led to the decline and removal of Sweden as an empire and as a great power in European affairs. But it's also the death of Charles XII that led to the end of the Age of Absolutism within uh, the Kingdom of Sweden. Upon his death, we saw the Age of Liberty, as the nobles in the parliament of the estates, who had previously had their land stripped, the, stripped from them by his father and were heavily taxed by Charles XII, took power back from the monarchy under the reign of Ulrika Eleonora and centralized that, entering in an Age of Liberty and a restricted monarch. So thank you for joining me for another week of History Should It Be a Mystery. As always, check out our ep previous episodes on the History Should It Be a Mystery uh, track on SoundCloud. In addition, as I mentioned in our last episode, we have an email open now at hsbm1844 at gmail.com, where we're going to take your comments, questions, and concerns and turn those into a five-minute feature on the air so we can discuss things that we necessarily haven't had the time to discuss on air on our show. So I hope all of you have a great weekend and join us next time on History Shouldn't Be a Mystery, where we talk about yet another historical figure from our past. And that's all the time we have left today for you history buffs. There's many more historical figures from our past to discuss. So be sure to join us same time, same place next week for a new edition of History Shouldn't Be a Mystery with your host, Connor Bolanos.